This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So I've been going through a series, and it's a series on spiritual gifts. Most pastors try and avoid this topic, especially if they're on the more conservative side of the ledger. And if you do venture into this territory, you try and put parameters up in the very beginning that don't allow you to get off the rails. And there's certain aspects of spiritual gifts that are just uncomfortable to deal with. And we've sort of gone straight into the fray of just as a, for example, uh, tongues and prophecy is just one of those. On the conservative side, just stay away from that. You can talk about the fact that this person has the gift of giving and everyone applauds. And they're like, oh, that, and this person has the gift of teaching. Oh, and it sounds so good and so right. And as long as you just keep within the sane territory, we're going to be okay. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about apostles and prophets. Uh, and again, I'm just I mean, I've either lost, uh, you know, a a few screws have come unloose in Eric Ludi, or Eric Ludi genuinely believes that this is important for the body of Christ. I'm going to vote with the second, uh, and that's, it's because when we do not tend to truth, the enemy notices and then fans into flame all sorts of issues around, which then bring confusion to the body of Christ. There are some of you that have expressed to me as we've walked through this, you've never heard anyone actually teach on this. And just think about that, an entire life in the church and never having heard what the Bible teaches on this, what does that lead to? It leads to a vulnerability, because if we don't know what the Bible teaches, then when something does come in, it can cause us to question a lot of things. It's like, have you ever been taught this? This is what it says right here. And they're correct. It does say that right there. And yet, to understand this topic, we need the breadth of Scripture, not just one singular reference. And so it's, it's a difficult one. I, we had a follow-up Wednesday night meeting after the last message. And by the way, I just want to apologize for the, uh, the gaps in between on this. It's like I, I build up this momentum and then I leave for a week. I, I keep sort of forgetting that I have these trips that seem to be woven into uh, my life during this stretch, but sorry about that. Uh, but it was a Wednesday following our initial Uh, or our last message, and I brought up a few issues. One was the issue of cessationism, which, again, this is a delicate topic in the body of Christ because there are those in this room that grew up with a cessationist mindset, and that's the way you approach Scripture. There's other people that are deeply offended by a cessationist mindset, and they are going to lean to the opposite end of the spectrum, which is to say, no, this is for today, and, and, you know, we're going to say charismatic or Pentecostal are going to be sort of on that other side. Now, one of the vision points I have is that we as the body of Christ can agree, since that's Paul's purpose in writing 1 Corinthians, which is where we're quoting him in, on all these points, his entire agenda in 1 Corinthians is to bring us together. And so to teach 1 Corinthians and to further 
progress a divide between us as the body of Christ does not make sense and doesn't seem to be in alignment with not only what Paul was attempting to do in writing that, but I'm going to say with, in, in alignment with God who was inspiring Paul to write that. And so God's agenda is to bring us together, but not on false premise, on truth. And I do not believe that this topic needs to divide. I believe that it can cause us to rally together. Now, when you deal with the issue of cessationism, that means that certain things are active in God's economy, in his kingdom pattern here on this earth, and then there comes to a point where it closes, and it's no longer necessary. In fact, to continue it would be actually inappropriate, like sacrifices in Jerusalem. That would be something that we would say has ceased, and it ceased because one sacrifice was given once and for all in and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it's the argument that we as the new covenant believers carry. We are cessationists in that sense. We do not bring our tithes and our offerings to Jerusalem, to the temple. That isn't how we function. And yet it does not mean because we are not wanting to show honor and respect to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's just that the system has changed. And so one of the arguments that is brought because of a passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is that the elements of spiritual giftings, this extra impartation of grace that we have been given, this charisma, as it's described in the Greek, where each of us is imparted something so that we can strengthen the overall body, that when the perfect comes, then the imperfect, which is in that context, things like tongues and prophecy, will disappear, will no longer be needed. And I'm going to say there's no reason to argue that scripture. It's a truth. But the question is, has the perfect come? Because a cessationist in the New Testament sense is going to say, yes, we received the entirety of the New Testament. All 27 books are done and final. Therefore, the perfect has come. And that's basically saying the word of God is the perfect. And I'm not going to argue that the word of God is perfect, right? But is it the perfect that Paul is referring to? Because ironically, Paul in that very context is writing the very book that would be called the perfect. And so it's almost like he finishes writing the sentence and says, basically, guys, when I finish publishing this book, what I'm writing about in this book will no longer be needed. And so what I want to say is I don't believe, now this is, this is Eric, okay? I know that there are division points on this, but at least you can understand my grid as I'm talking to you. That I don't come to the conclusion that the perfect has come in light of the context of that. I believe that when Jesus returns and sets all things in order in accordance with what he has promised in the scriptures, that the perfect has come. It's hard for me to look around and say, yeah, the perfect has come. I believe the Bible is perfect, but I have not come to the conclusion that the perfect as is referenced in 1 Corinthians 13 has come, which means if I come to that conclusion, I believe that there are certain things still needed for us to function as the body of Christ. And yet I'm very hesitant to actually proclaim that and to take the brakes off of the system that tries to hold back. Like Ellerslie is constantly dealing with this tension between the extremes. And we've had a lot of people come into our environment that, are, that lean charismatic. And praise God for that. I, I want them to feel welcome here. I want them to feel warmly invited here. And we also have a lot of people that have come in that would represent the 
opposites of that that are very concerned about the charismatic and that are very concerned that the charismatic has lost their brain and that they have gone wild-eyed after things that God has said, we no longer need that. So as, as a leader that is attempting to do something known as the Ellerslie experiment, which says, I believe that we as the body do not need denominational distinction to function. Yes, there are distinctions of how you interpret that verse, but that doesn't need to divide us. There are things that could divide us and reasonably divide us, but those things should have to do with Jesus and him crucified. As I always say, the five fingers, the word of God in text, the word of God in person, the word of God in action, the cross, the word of God in us, and the word of God through us. This is the pattern of Christianity. If you disagree on the word of God in text, it's like someone says, that's not God's word. Well, we have an issue because it's really hard to bond together as the body of Christ when you disagree that the Bible is God's word. If you disagree with God's, the Bible being God's word, then you're probably gonna have a problem with God's word in person being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so therefore you've already undermined the very fabric of what makes a Christian a Christian, which is to believe the word of God and what it says about the word of God in person, Jesus Christ, and that what that word of God in person did in action on the cross is everything that we believe in and rally around. So Paul says, Jesus and him crucified. And at Ellerslie, we call that the North Star. We fix our compasses to it. We don't fix our compass to spiritual gifts or to how we interpret one passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 13. We do not want that to color our relationship with each other, even though it very easily can. So I'm about to enter into a message that if I had a, a, you know, a panel of 10 pastors around me and I said, hey guys, what do you think about me giving this message this Sunday? I would say probably eight of them would counsel me to maybe rethink doing it. And there'd be one crazy guy in the bunch that's like, yeah, go for it. And I'm like, thanks, bud. And then I would go for it, right? I'm doing this because I do believe it is important for the times in which we live. It is delicate territory. It has a tendency to be a little more heady of a message than I prefer for the body of Christ as a whole. And yet I do, I'm going to try and navigate through it and try and minimize the headiness as much as I can to make it as much down to earth for even the younger ones in here to understand. If you could grow up in the body of Christ and understand this, it would really help. Because there are people today that are saying that they're apostles. Well, okay, well, any of us, if someone came in and said that they were an apostle, what would that mean to you? Now, some of us look at that as a creative title, like pastor or bishop, and they just happen to be an apostle. That's not what they mean by it. What they mean by it is actually something very specific. And there are people that are going around today that call themselves prophets. So how do we respond to that? Is that normal? I mean, I've never called myself an apostle or a prophet, and maybe I'm just missing out on something, right? And maybe I should, because it sounds like a very noble title, Apostle Eric. Oh, that sounds great. And yet, when these people are arising in the church, there are people, for instance, I'll just give you an example, that believe that the revelation as a prophet that they're receiving today has a higher degree of heavenly strength to it than what Paul the Apostle received from the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. They believe that the words they are receiving from heaven are of a higher grade than Scripture, which means they function 
first in the audience's mind that they reveal them to. In other words, this is better than even Scripture. So you would interpret Scripture through the words of that prophet as opposed to testing that prophet against the Word of God. Now, I don't know if any alarm goes off inside of you when I say these things, but it becomes very, very important for you to understand apostles and prophets. So just as a, a fun side story, we had a, an apostle come here to the church, and a, a modern-day apostle, according to the definition of this rising movement called which I don't think they call themselves this anymore, but at the time it was called the New Apostolic Re uh, Reformation, or NAR, or NAR. They believe that the church is supposed to be under apostles like it was in the first century. So uh, an apostle came here and gave me the opportunity to submit to him, my church. Well, I don't even know who this guy is. And so he gave me the statement that he is an apostle and every church should come under an apostle. And so I had the opportunity to come under him, to turn my church basically over to him. And I know this might sound like a shocker to you, but I said, no. And, but you have to recognize the reason I'm saying no is actually because I understand what an apostle is in our day and age. I understand that an apostle is not what governs the church like it did in the first century. And I'm going to walk you through that. That's why this becomes important, just in case you're leading a church someday and an apostle comes to you and says, hey, will you turn your church over to me? I cannot, that's like someone coming to my family and saying, will you turn your fatherhood over to me? It's like, no. Why? I've been entrusted with something and I'm responsible before God for this. I don't even know who you are. And so it's this odd miscarriage of interpretation of the, the scriptures that has created a certain chaos in our midst that makes us very vulnerable, especially when you're around a dead church with no life, and then you see this church that seems to have life. And so you gravitate towards it, and the life itself can be a bait, even though life is what we're after. And so how we navigate through these things becomes important. How's that for an introduction? Wow. The pattern passers, part five. So the triumvirate of the word of God, the word of God in text, the word of God in person, and the word of God in action. Now, I gave you five earlier, but I'm going to say these three are the basis of our faith. It's the basis of our gathering. How we are relating to the word of God in text is going to define how we relate to the word of God in person. If you have a low view of the word of God in text, you will end up with a low view of the word of God in person. If you have a low view of the word of God in text, you'll have a low view of the word of God in person, and therefore you'll have a low view of the word of God in action and his work on the cross. And that's exactly, I could give you all sorts of interesting examples to show you theologians who begin to diminish the word of God and then how that ends up diminishing the person of Jesus Christ. And then, ultimately, it begins to diminish what he did on the cross. Oh, that was just a good example of love. No, that was God in the flesh giving up his life for me. He was taking a punishment upon himself, and only God can forgive, and he is doing it right there. In other words, we are looking at the importance of actually esteeming the text because that's what enables us to esteem the man.
The reason we have confidence in the man is because we have confidence in that text. And the reason we have confidence in the cross is because we know what God says about that man. He fulfills all of this scripture. So it's an important relationship between these three. This is what binds us together. This is what keeps a healthy church going. How one treats the word of God in text defines how they treat the word of God in person and action. So I usually start elegantly with what I call the three positions. The word of God is out here. And many today are approaching the word of God from above it. So they look down on it. So that's, you stick the spectacles on the end of your nose and find all sorts of flaws in it. And most of us in here don't do that. So we feel really good about ourselves, like, well, I don't do that. And that's good. However, we sometimes end up having a relationship with the word of God as a buddy or beside it where we hang out with the word of God and we enjoy the word of God, sort of throw Frisbee with the word of God, but we don't submit to the word of God because any more than you'd submit to a friend that you're throwing the Frisbee with, you know, it's like, hey, go in and clean your room. And you're like, what? Who are you to tell me what to do? The word of God was not meant to be beneath us. It was not meant to just be a buddy. It was meant to be a master. It was meant to be a king of kings and a lord of lords. That's the word of God. The word of God is meant to be supreme commander in our life. When it speaks, we say, yes, Lord. You see, we're supposed to have a pierced ear, which means we have an ear to hear what the word of God says. It's what we call the predecided yes, Lord. Whatever that word is going to say, we already agree it's correct. We're wrong. If it differs from what we believe or we think, we're the ones that need to be corrected, not it. When you have a mentality that says, I want to be right, therefore, if the word of God differs from me, I will change it, I will strangulate it, I will reinterpret it, I will do whatever I can to preserve my life, that is an unhealthy relationship with the word of God. However, when it speaks and we bend our knee and we say, yes, Lord, that's what leads to success. So now we're going to start getting into some dicey, dangerous territory. I don't know why it is. It's funny because every topic I'm bringing up is just the word. This is what the Bible says, and we all agree that the Bible's right, but it's uncomfortable because we've seen it taken in the wrong way, which causes us to say, if we just don't talk about it, maybe no one in here will take it the wrong way. And I would say that's the greatest way to get it to be taken the wrong way is to ignore it. So the word in the Greek is apostolos. It translates to mean a delegate, messenger, one sent forth with orders, a sent one. And so if, if you understand Christian history and the advent of the church, and you understand Jesus and his relationship with his disciples, and he's going to make them apostles. He is going to send them. And you know we're all like, yay! And Paul calls himself an apostle. Peter calls himself an apostle. We have no problem with that. It's when... Some guy from down the road comes in here and calls himself an apostle that we don't know what to do with that. Because, I, I mean, is there a problem with that? Is that wrong to call yourself an apostle? Uh, that's why we're walking through this message. Revelation 2, 1 through 2. So this is a, something that God is going to reveal to the church at Ephesus. To the ch angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. 
Now, I know you could say, what does that have to do with anything? That means that there are those that proclaim to be apostles that weren't. That's all I'm saying. I'm just getting a little data out on the table, which means something known as a false apostle is a real thing. Just like we've heard of false prophets, obviously there were false apostles too. Ephesians 4. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." So what we are just reading here is going to be the number one argument for why apostles are still a viable thing. And I'm going to say that is the Bible, and that is what it says. It is not a misinterpretation to think that, that there are some that are given this, apostle, this, this charisma to be apostles in the church. It's like, I could just avoid that. If I could scrub that out of Scripture, this topic would be so much easier. Instead, it just sits there and hangs out in the book of Ephesians, making it difficult for all of us pastors. That we should no longer be children. This is why we were given this grace. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. We've been given these different gifts of grace in the church, these different functions within the body so that we could grow up to be the perfect man, so that we could reveal Jesus Christ. So the awkward introduction of modern apostles to the mix. See, when I was growing up, we didn't have terms like apostles and prophets. In the, in the, we did have prophets, I, I, I shouldn't say that, but apostles, that was sort of off limits. And no one walked around and called themselves an apostle. And now we have both at a very high level. And so this is an entire movement. Uh, the New Apostolic Reformation is about bringing about modern apostles. It's about building up the apostles as if we are the early church. It sounds really good on paper. And, and I understand why there's an enthusiasm for it. It's like, hey, we want the early church. The early church had apostles and prophets. That's exactly what we need. And I'm not going to argue that point, that we need what they had. It's just that the way God has defined his system is different than the way it was when it started. An apostle. It's a fairly, it's a fairly illustrious title. Throughout the past 2,000 years, even the greatest, most amazing Christian leaders have not assumed the title apostle. Athanasius did not presume such a title. Waldo, Luther, Wesley, and Whitfield did not assume the title apostle. Charles Spurgeon, Hudson Taylor, William Booth, and C.T. Studd, all men that changed the face of Christianity and modern missions in their day, all did not presume themselves apostles. Even Billy Graham, the modern equivalent of Wesley and Whitfield, shied away from such a grand title of apostle and instead bore the title reverend. So why the confusion? Now, I'm going to give something away here that is going to help explain something. Because there are apostles, you know, there's a capital A on that, and there are apostles, lowercase a. When you capitalize something that's meant to be lowercase, it really makes things interesting. The anatomy of a capital A apostle. So we're going to go back and we're going to start building the case for how the word apostle was originally used and why someone was considered an apostle. 
So to do that, we need to go further back than you were expecting. And remember, the name of this message is Pattern Passers. That's going to be very, very important because indirectly I'm giving you a cue there. I'm actually sharing with you that apostles are pattern passers. So was Moses. Okay, Moses is a pattern passer. You're going to notice that these pattern passers all have something to do with the text of Scripture. Like somehow through them, God is going to give a pattern and then they are going to write it down. So Moses received a pattern to pass. According to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so, you shall make it. That's Exodus 25.9. Moses is going to spend time on Sinai in God's presence. So it's called on the mount, where something is going to be revealed to him. And so he is actually going to see, according to what we're going to see in Scripture following, he's going to see the tabernacle of God there. And in vivid detail, he's going to say it, and God's going to say to him, yeah, build it according to that pattern that I showed you. So Moses is going to receive a pattern, and then he is going to build that pattern, or he is going to establish it, but he's also going to be told to write it down as a memorial in a book. And look that you make them after the pattern which was showed you in the mount. That's Exodus 25, 40. And you shall rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which was showed you in the mount. Exodus 26, 30. Hollow with boards shalt thou, shall you make it as it was showed you in the mount, so, you, so, you sh so they shall make it. Exodus 27, 8. And this work of the candlestick was of beaten gold under the shaft thereof, under the flowers thereof, was beaten work according unto the pattern which the Lord had showed Moses, so he made the candlesticks. That's Numbers 8, 4. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. So Moses sees and then builds accordingly. And that's not an accident that I'm showing you that. I'm just getting something warmed up here who served unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, said he, that you shall make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Moses has seen something, and then he's going to build it accordingly. David received a pattern to pass. So most of us understand that Moses was the one that built the tabernacle in the wilderness. But the tabernacle was almost a shadow of something to follow called the temple. And the tabernacle was a mobile house where there's going to be a permanent house set up. And then in the New Testament, just as a foreshadow of where this is going, we then are going to be likened unto a temple. So what we are seeing is a pattern is passed to these trusted ones that are known as prophets in the Old Testament that then they are going to write it down, or they're going to pass it along, or they're going to build it. David also received a pattern to pass. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch. Well, how did David get that? David seems to have some pattern of this temple, and of the houses thereof, and of the treasuries thereof, and of the upper chambers thereof, and of the inner parlors thereof, and of the place of the mercy seat, and the pattern of all that he had, how did he have it? By the Spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord and of all the chambers round about, of the treasuries of the house of God and of the treasuries of the dedicated things. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me. What an interesting description. Even all the works of this pattern. 
Moses is going to encounter God, and God is going to give him a pattern. David is going to encounter God, and God is going to give him a pattern. Moses receives a pattern for a tabernacle, a house. David is going to receive a pattern for a temple, a house. It's not, I'm saying these things on purpose, by the way, if you're wondering, what is Eric talking about? Well, hopefully it starts to tie together. The prophets received a pattern to pass. So here's just some samples. Then Micaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all, of all, and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And you're saying, how is that a pattern? Well, what are they seeing? What is Micaiah seeing? He's seeing Jesus. Okay, now that is somewhat of a you know, spoiler alert right there. Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. What has Isaiah seen? He's seen Jesus. Amos 9.1, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. Isn't that interesting? Uh, these, these guys are all seeing something. Ezekiel received a pattern to pass. Thou son of man, show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. So Ezekiel is literally going to be led by an angel with a measuring rod, and they're going to measure out this thing. It's, we know it as the Ezekiel temple, the heavenly temple. It's this measurement of perfection. You could also call it, I know this is somewhat of a spoiler, Jesus. In other words, it's the perfect temple. It's the perfect house. And he is supposed to share this with the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Isn't that a strange thing? Could you imagine if someone laid out a blueprint in front of you? Are you feeling convicted by seeing this blueprint? Usually blueprints or designs don't create a sense of wrong unless that blueprint is showing the way you ought to be. This is the measurements of what is perfect and righteous. How are you doing? You see, we fall short of the perfect pattern. We are not the house that we were designed to be. Something has been corrupted within. Jesus is going to be that perfect house. I know, spoiler alert, it's all over the place here. A pattern passer. One who sees the pattern of the house, and I have house is all caps. Well, not all caps. H is cap. Maybe I should have made it all caps. One who sees the pattern of the capital H house and then is responsible to pass along that pattern so that it might be built. Moses passes along a pattern, tabernacle built. David passes along a pattern, temple built. Now we have what we could call the entire Old Testament. They're passing along a pattern. What are they all seeing? They're all seeing the same thing. They're seeing Jesus. And that pattern is then going to be fulfilled in the perfect temple, being built, if you want to say it, by God himself before our eyes as Israel. And he's going to walk with two feet. He's going to have two hands. He's going to have a nose, eyes, ears, a mouth. Whoa! That pattern is going to become flesh and dwell among us. What did they see? They saw a God house, a place in which the Spirit of God lives. Now, the more you know about New Testament Christianity, you're going to understand the shocker that Paul is going to reveal. Because we're going to see Jesus as a house. Even he is going to refer him to himself and his body as a temple. Tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. But the temple of which he spoke was his body. So that's, 
that's something that we're going to get to in just a second. But then Paul is going to give the shocker of shockers and say, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God, that the Holy Spirit lives in you? In other words, this house that has been seen and witnessed has a lot to do with what we are doing here, known as the church. So here's, I have multiple times I'm going to stick this green building. I don't know why I picked green. Maybe it's just because it's living, right? Because there there are certain uh, times, like one of the festivals, uh, where you're going to see them all bring a, a living a branch that is freshly cut from a tree, so it's covered with leaves, and they're going to make dwellings uh, under it, right? So it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's something to that. So we have a green leafy building here. And we're going to see this revealed in the Old Testament as the tabernacle. Then we're going to see it as the temple. We also have the house of Israel is what it's called. And we have the house of Judah. And this is what we're going to call the pattern. How do we recognize Jesus? Well, he perfectly fulfills that pattern. That is who he is. Jesus declared that he is that God house. John 2, this is the scripture I was just referencing, 19 through 22. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it, was, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. The Apostle John declared that Jesus was and is the pattern of the God house made flesh. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I've seen the pattern on two feet. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything that is going to be witnessed by these prophets is going to be fulfilled. They saw a pattern and they they expressed it in an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple. But now we have a man in a human body filled with the Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit was in the, in the temple of old, now he is in this man named Jesus Christ. And we have what we could call the perfect man or the perfect house. They all saw Jesus. So if we understand that, this house technically isn't just a house, it's Jesus. And that is the fulfillment of the revelation of this house as is seen. He's the fulfillment of the tabernacle in the wilderness. He's the fulfillment of the temple of God. All of that is a foreshadow. Yes, he's a, he's a, he's a fulfillment of a lot of other things in addition to that, the sacrifices. He's a fulfillment of the manna in the wilderness, the rock in the wilderness. All of those things are pointing to him. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a house today. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that house. The New Testament pattern pastors. So we see Moses. We see David. passing. They see something. They behold something. They encounter something. They are eyewitnesses of majesty. And then they are going to write it down and pass it along and build it. And so what we see is this pattern established in the Old Testament, and then Jesus is going to launch the new covenant. He is going to launch this thing known as the church of Jesus Christ with a similar propulsion, a similar pattern. He is going to have men around him that are going to be eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
that are going to handle him, that are going to know him, and that are going to behold the pattern. And then they are going to build it. So first century Christianity, those that walked with Jesus, I'm not going to say that we are, have a lesser connection to Jesus Christ. That, that sounds terrible to say, yeah, the apostles had it all good and we, you know, we get this stinky version of Christianity. We have something very, very special because we've been given the Holy Spirit. However, what they have is still unique. It's a unique part of Christian history, and there's unique elements of it that are important for us to recognize as unique elements. Just like it's a unique element for sacrifices in Jerusalem and for a temple and for you know, all the nations to come to that temple and to have three courts, to have a Gentile court that they could even come to then have an inner court for the priests that are sanctified and consecrated, and then we have a holy of holies. That was a unique season. To say that it would have better, been better to live in that season than to say what we have is an improper way of describing it, but it is unique. And to be able to see the temple of old and to walk inside of it, wouldn't that have been extraordinary? I mean, that would be amazing. However, that does not mean that we have lesser. In fact, the new covenant is actually going to boast that we have something greater. But there are New Testament pattern passers, and they are known as capital A Apostles. The Apostle Peter says this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is going to become a very, very important thing when we talk about New Testament apostles with a capital A, is to recognize that they all seem to encounter this one known as Jesus or this perfect house in a very intimate, tangible real-world way. They saw him. They interacted with him. The Apostle John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So those first two men that I just described were both called apostles. And so this is, again, we're getting into some dangerous territory, and hopefully you'll understand why this is dangerous as we move forward. It's a very difficult thing if you were to ask me, so who were the apostles? Can you name them in a delineated list? That's actually somewhat challenging because we, we aren't given that list ourselves. We can guess at it. We know that, like, for instance, the New Jerusalem is built upon the foundation of the 12 apostles. There seems to be a number there. And if, if I were to say, so does that include Judas? You would say, well, that's a tough one. And, and I would say, probably not, right? But, you know, who does it? Who is the 12th, if that's the case? How do you, how do you know the names? Because it doesn't go through them in that sense. We know who his disciples were, and we know uh, who was in the early church. We know exactly who replaced uh, Judas. But, but is that how it works? Are those our 12? What do we do with Paul? Is he one of those 12? We know that Paul was an apostle. Okay, you follow me? This is why this gets into some murky gray territory that God, for whatever reason, didn't go out of his way to clarify. He just sort of leaves it there with a question mark and says, do you trust me? The apostle Paul. Then last of all, he was seen by me also. Isn't that an interesting way of describing it? That Paul himself in relationship to this one as known as Jesus, who we would say Paul had nothing to do with Jesus. Well, he was a contemporary of Jesus. 
He would have probably seen him speaking, teaching. He probably even could have been witness of the crucifixion. I mean, it's a, he was a witness of the resurrected Christ. We know that on the road to Damascus. But what an interesting statement Paul is going to say. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So they saw the pattern for the perfect house. They encountered Jesus, the perfect house. And then were sent forth to pass along the pattern and to build it up. So this first wave of apostles are those that are sent to do what? To take from what they have witnessed and to see it established. You see, we are called the church. Another way of describing us is the body of Christ. Another way of describing us would be the house of God. We are the mobile version in a different way than Jesus was, but we are Jesus carrying out the life of the Holy Spirit. We are not Jesus in the sense of being him, but we are the representation of him in a house form filled with the same spirit of God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So this is sort of a summary of where we're at right now. We have our greenhouse, see that little door down there? It's a huge house. I mean, if you think about how big that is. Uh, and this, this house is Jesus. And I, you'll notice I have the big words I have on our Jesus and the pattern. This is the pattern. The pattern actually in the Old Testament is going to reveal the Son of God, Jesus. The pattern in the New Testament is going to take from that witness and it's going to establish something known as the church. And the church, when you see it, you're supposed to see Jesus. Just like when you see the tabernacle, you're supposed to see the foreshadow of Jesus to come. When you see the temple, you're supposed to see the foreshadow of Jesus to come. When you see us, you're supposed to see what was and what is and will always be. His name is Jesus. So you'll see underneath in the smaller type, the tabernacle, the temple, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. This is the pattern that God has been establishing. And the apostles are putting it all together. They're connecting the Old Testament with the fulfillment of Jesus and then seeing what he desires to do in this world. And then they are tasked to go and build it, to be the carriers of this. They are going to be the ones that are going to write down what they have seen and heard. And this is going to constitute what we understand as Scripture. What exactly makes a capital A apostle a capital A apostle? I'm glad you asked. Thanks for asking that question. A capital A apostle. This is going to be, and I'm going to say, part of this is the historic weight of the church and their conclusions. Part of this is Eric trying to do his best to articulate something that is not actually that easy to articulate, which is why there can be wiggle room in this, which can create some potential harm. 
I am not one of those that likes to just create a rigid conclusion on things and say, I've got it all figured out. The Pharisees did that, and it didn't turn out so hot for them. In other words, I'm not interested in just being so dogged in my position saying, no, this could never be that I eclipse the, the concept of God working as he sees fit. But what we've been given is the text of Scripture to create a guideline to understand what the Spirit of God is intending to do and what he will do so that we can see it and we can approve it. How can I test the spirits to see that they're from God unless I have something to test those spirits against? And that is the text of Scripture. So to the degree that we have the text of Scripture, let's use it to make uh, discerning conclusions on this. A capital A apostle. They're eyewitnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're men who saw the perfect house. They're men personally sent out by Jesus Christ to be the pattern passers. That would be what I would say the classically understood way of describing the capital A apostles in history. So here's a, another way of saying it. They saw and then built what they saw. These pattern passers were simply known as apostles of Jesus Christ with a capital A. So as we navigate forward, you're going to notice that there's this lowercase a version of apostle that I've already awakened you to, which feels a little scary over there, depending on who you are. Some of you are like, let's get to that. I really want to know about that. Others of you are like, how about we just skip that? We don't need to talk about that. I feel very comfortable talking about the early church and the capital A apostles. This is comfortable territory for me. But to, like, for instance, Acts, when the, when the uh, apostles go running into the streets of Jerusalem speaking in tongues, most of us are fine with that. You know, I, I, can, I can handle that. It's when someone is running around in the streets of Windsor speaking in tongues that we have a little more difficulty, right? It's taking that from back then and moving it today that we don't have a translation for. I'm not sure what to do with it. That's not how the church functions. And in all of this, we are bringing up things that we have to have, like if you have a whole bunch of strings that are supposed to be tied, we need to start tying them as the church of Jesus Christ so that we know what to reasonably expect and to hope for, what we allow in our midst and what we say, no, that isn't how this works. Those are challenges. So let's look at what the scriptures say about Paul. Paul, called to be an apostle, Romans 1. Called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, 2 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, Colossians 1.1. 1, 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 1.1. 1, 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, 2 Timothy 1.1. 1, 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ, Titus 1.1. 1, 1. I think it's pretty clear. I think we have enough witness to conclude that Paul was an apostle. Peter, what does it say? An apostle of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. A bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. So this is going to become important as I'm trying to explain this. I have a capital A apostle written outside, but it's outside the pattern, not because it's not included in the pattern. I'm trying to give a visual for you to understand what they are seeing. What an apostle is seeing is they are, I say, they saw, they built, and they passed. What did they see? They are seeing this house. They are seeing what we understand as the Bible. God is going to instruct them and not just understand the Old Testament, but then he's entrusting them with what we know as the New Testament, the words of life. 
He is showing them Jesus, but he's also giving them annunciation for us of something. And it's called the pattern of what? The body of Christ or what we call the church of Jesus Christ. How do we know what a healthy church looks like? Where are we gonna come up with that? We need a pattern. Well, who was given that pattern? These guys, the eyewitnesses of majesty. These capital A apostles were given something so that we can test that which is not true, so that we can approve that which is true. Without this test, without what these apostles give us, we are in dangerous territory. I already feel like we are, right? But we actually have something now to test and approve things with. We have the text of Scripture. Praise God for that. Who were these pattern passers? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. This is Paul speaking. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So we don't have a lot of clarity when it comes to defining the, the list, especially when Paul throws in something he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Are those 500 apostles? Paul seems to keep it to a very limited number, and yet there were other witnesses to it. I don't think that's his point is in the context of apostles. It just happens to be how we're reading it right now. But what we recognize is that there are very specific ones that saw, and he is putting himself in this list. And then in that context, he is calling himself an apostle, though he is saying he's the least amongst them. Born out of due time, which means he believed that even his apostleship seemed strange. The others made more sense, but his seemed strange. It was like he was born at an odd time to be an apostle. It's like, well, I was like, after the fact, I was persecuting the church, and then I saw the resurrected Christ. Now, what you recognize then is there seems to be a window of time where these apostles were defined. It wasn't just an ongoing thing through history. It seemed to be that even Paul himself felt like it was somewhat strange that he was included. Acts 1, 1 through 3. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to me also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So even as Luke is writing this book in, in, to King Theophilus, the book of Acts, he is describing these apostles as being the ones visited by Jesus in his uh, resurrected body. And so we know that Paul wasn't there, but that makes sense why Paul is going to say born out of, in, out of due time. It's like I wasn't there, but I'm somehow included in this group. But what I'm trying to make clear is this group is not just infinite. This group seems to be very defined. Revelation 21, 14. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Again, a very defined number. 
strangely small. And like I said before, if you ask me who are the 12 names, well, I could give you probably 11 of them. But when it comes to Judas, I'm going to vote a different way and maybe go with Paul. Uh, But even that, I don't know. And that's part of the vulnerability that we feel as teachers on this topic is when you get too dogmatic on things that aren't revealed, it's dangerous territory. All I know is what I see in Scripture. That's all we have to work with. These capital A apostles seem to be God-chosen vehicles to governmentally establish the form and function of the church and to establish the canon test for the church moving forward in order that it might test every spirit and approve that which is right and correct. They set up the pattern by which all other construction might be measured from there on out. So if I'm building a ministry over here, from that point, from this point of the revelation of the word of God in and through these apostles, then that production or that construction project that I'm working on, that I could say this is godly, can be tested against that text. This pattern that has been passed, we understand it as the scriptures. It is the house of God. It is the true picture of the pattern of health and righteousness and truth. This is what we are entering into. This is how it works. If we're going to please God, we've been given the pattern to move forward. It addresses every ailment we face, every sinful propensity we have, everything that would dampen, everything that would invade this environment. We have been given knowledge and understanding in and through his word, and by the help of the Holy Spirit can actually have answers and wisdom for every situation we could ever face unto the coming of Christ. We have been given what we need, but we are not still being given the text of Scripture, and that would be my argument. In other words, I do not believe that we are still gushing out, that the Holy Spirit is still gushing out Scripture that is supposed to be included in the Bible through us. There was a guy that was writing the final chapters to, what was it, the book of John or uh, the other day? And, and I'm just going to say, hey, guys, this is uncomfortable. What is taking place here is unprecedented in Christian history. And so it's not that I'm against God working through his body in magnificent ways. It's just that I want to be able to test and approve if someone has new scripture. Well, that colors everything we know because I reason through scripture. Everything we do has to be touched by that, has to grow out of that, has to be tested and approved by that. If there's new scripture over here that I don't know about, that matters, right? And so how can we have any solidity as the body of Christ, any unity, unless we know what the foundation is? All right, guys, boy, it's taken a long time to get here, hasn't it? A small a apostle. Now, what's funny is the moment I do that, look what the next screen is. To explain a small a apostle, it is first necessary to further show how the capital A apostles function as pattern pastors. It's like, well, thanks, Eric. That was wonderful. I'll get there, okay? It's very important, but I also want you to understand the significance of this, that I'm not trying to throw out what it says in Ephesians, that God has first set apostles in the church. It's like, that's what it says, until the perfect man, until literally the church is ripened unto perfection, we need this. I'm not going to throw that out, but how do I reason through this in a way that actually brings health to the body? So to further explain this, uh, what, a capital, what a small A apostle is, we need to do something first and show how the capital A apostles functioned as pattern passers. Fact number one, in the first century, the capital A apostles were in charge of the churches. Paul was over all the churches. He was an apostle. 
This, and if you understand that, it's going to make sense why someone would come to this church and say, hey, I'm an apostle. You should be under uh, an apostle if you're going to be a healthy church. This is where that comes from because that's true. Paul was over the, the church. That, that isn't an argument I'm going to make. It was initially the word of the apostles and the word of prophecy is revealed to and or approved by the apostles of Jesus Christ that governed the early church, built the early church, protected them from error, and steered them towards the glory of Jesus Christ. Fact number two, the capital A apostles supplied us the approved scriptures. The capital A apostles were inspired by the Spirit of God to write and or approve the inspired writing of the New Testament scriptures which outlined and clearly established the method for governing the church of Jesus Christ moving forward into the forthcoming generations. They gave us the canon test. In other words, the canon test, if you haven't gone through Ellerslie, is how scripture is even measured. So for instance, we measure Jesus off of the Old Testament. That's, that was the canon. And he was tested off of that. If he was a false prophet, he would not match. But if he matches, if he fulfills it, he is in fact that Messiah. But every book of the Bible has to be measured against something. Even the New Testament has to be measured against something when the books were being added. But now that we have the canon, that becomes the test. It becomes the test for each of our lives individually. It becomes the test for our marriages. It becomes the test for our families. It becomes the test for our churches. We have something to measure against. They gave us the canon test. They showed us how the house of God, the church, ought to be built. They saw the pattern and then passed it along to us. They saw, they built, they passed. Doesn't that sound like some epic movie right there? It sounds like one of those old time trailers and the guy with the deep voice would be, it would be like epic movie score, but they saw, they built, they passed. And then it's like poof, some explosion on the screen. Be exciting. Second Timothy 1.13. So this is in the New Testament. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. Paul knows that they have passed along to the next generation a pattern. What pattern is that? It's the pattern of sound words. Where did he get that? Well, that's coming as a derivative of the walk with Jesus, the relationship with the Holy Spirit where God is establishing, just like he did the tabernacle, just like he did the temple, he is establishing another house. He is establishing the church of Jesus Christ. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.2 And the things you have heard from me, remember that pattern? Among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you're seeing is a pattern pass. That Paul is going to pass on to Timothy something. It's the very thing, it's this pattern. And then Timothy is supposed to entrust it himself. You see, what we are in the business of here at Ellerslie is passing along that pattern. But it's not to invent the pattern. It's not to create a new pattern. It's to pass along that pattern. The pattern that came from Jesus, which fulfilled the entire Old Testament, and then was passed to the apostles, who were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and then clarified what that pattern was and gave it to us. And then gave it to Timothy and then gave it to every subsequent generation, and here we are with this same pattern. What are we supposed to do with it? We're supposed to be trained in it, and then we're supposed to implement it and pass it along. So what did the capital A apostles say about there being more apostles? Uh-oh, you lowercase a apostles, guys. You still want me to go on? We could stop right here. 
Uh, they seem to indicate that there will indeed uh-oh, be those who are lowercase a apostles in the church even after the capital A apostles finish passing along the pattern. Oh, no. Uh, you see, everything in life would be so much easier if God just made it clear instead of one little passage in 1 Corinthians 13 about tongues and prophecies still being active and giving us a little better book than 1 Corinthians, which is a rebuke correction book on how they're misusing it. Show us how to use it. Instead, we have so much complexity over this issue. I feel the same way about this. First apostles, yeah, we want those in the church. Like, oh, are you sure you want that? You know what's going to happen? In the year 2020, we're going to have something known as the New Apostolic Reformation because of that. I mean, God, you have to be watchful here with what you reveal. You see, all of Scripture can be mishandled and can be unrightly divided. It is up to us to know the Scripture so that we can test and approve the Spirit's so that we can know when it's the flesh instead of the Holy Spirit, so that we can give a guard to the church of Jesus Christ and not just be swayed by every wind of doctrine that comes through. Ephesians 4, 7 through 8, and he himself gave some to be apostles. That's a lowercase a there. Till, and how long will those apostles be there? Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Huh, not exactly sure that we've arrived there and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I don't know how many of you want to go on record saying we reached that point. And so, it would be safe to say, if we're in agreement with Scripture, it would be pretty obvious even a child could come to the conclusion that would mean that he has still given us apostles. Ah. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, and God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Well, that's quite the list, isn't it? And guess what's in there? Apostles and prophets. Now you notice I'm not saying a lot about prophets, but the same things I'm saying about apostles, you, there's going to be a capital P prophet and there's going to be a lowercase p prophet. And so... It's the same principle. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And that's the end of 1 Corinthians 12, which is then going to lead to love at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 13. So what about a small a apostle? You guys trust that I'm actually going to move forward on this, or do you think I'm just going to dance around this all day? The capital A apostles do, in fact, talk about more apostles in the church outside of themselves. And it appears that these lowercase a apostles are needed in the church for it to succeed and are uniquely gifted and equipped for their work by God himself. However, these apostles are not like the capital A apostles with authority over the global church and with unique position to lay out the original form and function of the church. They are not eyewitnesses of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and current glorified condition. They were not present with Jesus in the first century when he was here on earth in bodily form to give the capital A apostles their sending commission straight from him personally. And they are not recipients of the words of new scripture and authoritative canon text. These apostles, lowercase a, that the capital A apostles seem to be referring to are small a apostles. They are apostles gifted by the Holy Spirit to build up the church, to receive the pattern from the pattern passers 
and effectively implement it. They are sent ones that go into all the world to preach the gospel and establish churches in perfect agreement with the pattern that was passed. But they are sent ones that are sent by the church, not directly by Jesus Christ. Now that could be an argued point of semantics. We're all sent by Jesus Christ. However, your sending mission is actually out of a local church. It's not just from Jesus. You're actually being sent by the body of Christ. That is a key distinction here. Typically, historically, the idea of apostle has been church planters and missionaries. Those are the ones that do the function of the lowercase a apostle in the church. They are trained up in the church to understand the pattern of church and then to go and establish it. But where did they get the pattern from? They didn't invent it. They had to take it from somewhere. Where was it? It was the pattern that was already in existence, given to us by all the way back to Moses, on through David and the prophets, fulfilled in Jesus, and then by the early apostles. We have been given a foundation to now implement. So when I send forth a missionary here from Ellerslie, that's someone that has actually been made ready with a pattern to go out and implement that pattern in other parts of the world. When someone is establishing and planting a church, you don't want to do that lightly. You need to know the pattern. You need to know how to rightly handle that pattern so that when you enter into a church situation, you know how to keep it healthy and guarded and strong and foster life within it. These apostles, lowercase a, in question are not the capital A apostles of Jesus Christ. They are not pattern passers. Listen to this clarification. They're pattern implementers. In other words, they're not the ones that saw on, the, on Mount you know, uh, Sinai they're not like David who literally had the revelation or the vision of the temple of God and then passed it on to his son Solomon. They're not like the prophets of the Old Testament and it's not trying to diminish how we function as the New Testament church. I'm not trying to say we have less of God now than they had back then. However, the way we even test what God is doing inside of your life is against something that's established and at its rock beneath our feet. And so winds and rains can beat against us and we can stand firm. Why? Because we can root our confidence in something that is already revealed. We have the word of God. And we desperately need these kind of small A apostles in our modern day. They are often referred to in modern church vernacular as missionaries and church planters. They are indeed men functioning as apostles, but not with capital A authority to write scripture and to be a pattern pastor, but they are apostles with a small a gifting, commissioned to effectively spread the world over the pattern that was passed as revealed in scripture for building the church. These sort of small a apostles were not super governors of the church at large as were Paul and Peter in the first century, but are now men and women, listen to this, submitted to local church authority who received their ordination from the local church through the laying on of hands. This next generation following the apostles are going to impart authority in and through a local church system, not through a super governance system of like Paul and Peter. Paul was over all the churches, but then he is going to hand off individual authority to the churches, and now the churches actually are going to be microcosms of the whole, so that something can be sent out from the church, not to govern the church. So here's another uh, picture. You guys are enjoying this greenhouse. And you'll see the apostles are going to see the pattern, and they're going to describe the pattern, and they're going to pass along the pattern. And that's what the first generation of apostles is doing. 
And what we're going to receive is something known as the Bible or the pattern. The pattern for what? The body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. Inside that house is a needed function. What is that function? I put it down there by the door so you can see it. Apostles. It's no longer the capital A outside. It's actually inside the church that this is needed to strengthen our, our purpose, what we are called to do. We're not called to stagnate here. We're actually called to reproduce and to go into all the world and to share this amazing pattern. And some of us are gifted in that way. Not all of us are supposed to be that, but some of us are going to be gifted and equipped within this body to do exactly that. A look at the pattern passed by the capital A Apostles for Healthy Church Governance. So in this pattern, you know that it never says that apostles and prophets are over the church? It does not say that. In the pattern passed to us by the capital A Apostles, they give us very specific governance of how this church is supposed to work. And ironically, it doesn't include apostles and it doesn't include prophets. What does it include? Episcopos, presbyteros, and diakonos. I know that helps, doesn't it? Bishops or overseers, elders, and then deacons, which are also known as servants. The governance of this church is actually not supposed to be apostles and prophets. They are meant to be submitted to these guys so that the things that they are saying and doing actually are being tested and approved against something. Not against their own whims. Some apostle and prophet is saying, hey, I just have a new revelation of what I'm supposed to be doing with my life and how I'm supposed to be living. That is never healthy for any of us when we start being a word of God unto ourselves and we start declaring our own word. But when we submit to God's system, everything can thrive. Strangely, appointing apostles and prophets for the purpose of church government is never mentioned in the pattern that was passed to us in the New Testament. So here we see this pattern. We have apostles on the outside. They're going to see this pattern. And when they're going to express this pattern, they're going to show that the governance of the church is bishops, overseers, elders, deacons, servants. And you're going to notice, I'm going to say, a governmental office in the church. Isn't it strange to say that we have governmental offices in the church? It just feels weird. Sort of like, eh. And yet we do. We do have something known as church government. But that church government has nothing to do with apostles and prophets. It has to do with bishops, elders, and deacons. That's what the Bible reveals in the pattern. However, it also shows ministries that flow out and work underneath that government, that that government should not stymie, but should foster. And that ministry includes something known as apostles. Of course, I could put a lot of things in that list that are very uncomfortable too. And yet, they aren't the ones that lead the church. They're the ones that are under church government. So if we're going to do everything decently in order, we need to recognize, we need to know the pattern of how to do that. And these functions, these charisma movements of grace within the church need to be under governance. So how does this affect us today? We need to realize we are not in the capital A or capital P, like capital P prophecy, period of the church, but are in the period of building up the church according to the pattern as shown us in the scriptures. We are no less empowered, this is a key point, we are no less empowered to do our work than were the capital A apostles. I do not believe we have a lesser amount of grace. It's just that our function and our purpose is going to be different than Paul was to actually write scripture or to be a super governor over all the churches. That isn't how we are intended to function. So we have the pattern because of that, 
And we are no less given the power of the Holy Spirit to implement that pattern. But we are constrained to build according to an existing pattern. Now, some of you get mad at that. It's like, oh, come on, we love creativity. God is very creative. But for our protection, he doesn't change either, though. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that house doesn't alter. It's just sort of the same. That house has the same nature, the same construct, the same measurements that it has always had. So we are constrained to build according to an existing pattern. It's called the scriptures. For the Holy Spirit will never build anything contrary to the scriptures. The days of the pattern passers is ceased. The day of the pattern defenders, pattern implementers, and pattern champions is in full stride. And we need small A apostles in order to properly defend, implement, and champion this beautiful and almighty pattern. Ellerslie Mission Society. Now, we could call it Ellerslie Apostle Society, and no one would ever show up, probably. That's what missionaries are. In the understanding that I would have in appropriating scripture are those that are sent sent to share that pattern, sent to let others know about this great greenhouse with a little white door. And I mean, all that God has stowed away, all the blessing that his very spirit lives within that house, that he desires to build you up as his children and to establish you with his very life inside of you so that you could reveal his goodness to the world around you. So 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and verse 31. Now you are the body of Christ. Remember that house, that greenhouse? Yeah, you guys are that house and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. Uh-oh, guys, here it is. First apostles. Now I skipped the rest of the list just to sort of give a nice you know, weight in the air, the gravity in the air. That This is how God built that house that he says, this matters. This is a very, very important thing. So as Ellerslie, you know, one of our highest priorities, if not our highest priority, is that we would train up missionaries. Now, I do not call them apostles. And there's a reason for that. It's the very reason I'm giving this message. I do not talk, and I shared this before when I was talking about spiritual gifts. If I sense that God is giving me a nudge to come up to you and put my hand on your shoulder and pray for you or say something to you, I do not call that weird things. If you said, what were you doing, Eric? I just, well, I just felt like God was leading me to come up to you and pray for you. I do not need to call that a word of knowledge and have everyone get all weirded out. There are terms that are used in scripture that are perfectly fine terms. There's nothing wrong with the terms. It's just that they've been hijacked by some rather odd folks that have used them in a way that causes everyone that wants to you know, be deemed intelligent to back away from ever using those terms again. Apostles just happens to be one of them. Prophets is not far behind. Tongues and prophecy rank right up there you know, with anyone that's hanging out in a loony bin. That's like classic terminology for them. I still remember A.W. Tozier, one of my heroes, he has this one quote in one of his books. He's like, yes, and like our tongue-talking brethren down the road, uh, or he said, unlike our tongue-talking brethren down the road. And I don't know that that necessarily means that A.W. Tozier didn't believe that tongues was for today, but I know what he means by that, that there are certain churches that are known for their tongue-talking. If your church is known for its tongue-talking, it obviously needs a lesson in decency and order because there is nothing edifying in that, and I just covered that in our last message. 
There is nothing intelligible. You are not giving anything that is strengthening the body. You don't want to be, as a church, known for your tongue talking. You want to be known for truth bearing, for your love, for your care for each other. These are the hallmarks that showcase the true church of Jesus Christ. We are seeking the best gifts here in Windsor, Colorado, so we are desiring to be sent ones. See, if we say sent ones, isn't it funny how that feels totally comfortable? It's like, oh yeah, I can, I can get into that. Because that's what we are. We are desiring God, give me the commission. What do you want with my life? That's what I want to do. Yeah, you want to be one that takes of this pattern and then brings it to other people anywhere in the world that God would send you. We desire to be equipped and to equip all of you as sent ones that go into all the world and preach the gospel. But to be ready for such a grand title as a sent one, we must first be one considered ready to be sent. Who decides when one is ready? Good news, the pattern has been passed along to us in order to figure that out. You know that if we're going to say, well, how do we know when someone's ready? How, how do we know when someone's fit to be a deacon, to be an elder, to be a bishop? You know that the pattern itself answers that question? How do we know when someone is fit to be one representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords somewhere else in this world or to be actually building a church? These are answers that are actually very real in the text of scripture. Here's just a couple samples. There is a pattern for testing and approving bishops, elders, and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. If the man is going to build the house of God, then he first must know how to rule his own house. If you are floundering in your own house and your house is any, it's like black instead of green, then you shouldn't be the one representing that house and that house's message to, you know, to some other place in the world. Or say, hey, we're going to build a, another house here in, in Windsor. Yeah, it's going to turn out black instead of green in that situation because you don't even know how to implement it in your own life, let alone in a church. So first implement it in your life, then you'll be fit to implement it in a church. He can't be a beginner at this building thing, but be a proven handler of the pattern. There is a palpable distortion in our, in our modern day regarding the sent ones. And I already mentioned, you know, the man that came here and wanted to bring me under his apostolic leadership. And yet in my understanding, I would be forsaking the trust that I have been given. Just sort of like giving over my kids to something that isn't truly supposed to be over them. I'm responsible as a father. And I'm responsible for what God has handed to me here. He's entrusted something and I need to do whatever is necessary to protect that. And so because of this distortion that we have of trying to return to capital A apostles, we have created all sorts of odd things. Now, I don't know how familiar some of you are with these odd things. To be honest, if you don't know anything, I don't know that it harms you, okay? It could be great if you know nothing about what's been going on over the last decade, especially in this regard. But it is also a very, very real movement in and amongst the church, that has created a lot of distortion and a lot of falling away, okay? There's been a lot of havoc wrought. But the best way to protect the pattern passed along to us is to follow it ourselves. Well, how can we do that? We esteem the pattern passed to us. We protect the pattern passed to us. We employ the pattern passed to us. We, we're corrected by the pattern passed to us. We're built after the pattern passed to us, and we pass along the pattern passed to us. That's what we do. Do you not know that you and I as believers are that God house? 2 Corinthians 6.16, you are the temple of the living God. No, we are not God, but we are the dwelling place of God. 
2 Corinthians 6.16, as God has said to them, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And just as Jesus was the word of God in personable, actionable form, get this guys, this is so powerful, so he has given us his Holy Spirit that we might be the very personable expression of Jesus Christ to this world, the house of God in loving action. 2 Corinthians 3, 2 through 3, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. We are called to reveal that pattern. We're supposed to be a living epistle of that house so that when people see us, interact with us, they see the greenhouse. They see Jesus. They see life as it ought to be. So here's our picture. The Holy Spirit is the one that has carried along the writers of that pattern to reveal it. He's also the very one who takes of that pattern and builds us. What is he building? He's building a picture of Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's his full-time occupation. He's going to convict us of sin to do that. He's going to train us in righteousness. He's going to reveal to us the pattern. And he's going to convict us over that pattern. He's going to lay out the blueprint and say, hey, how are you doing here? But what he's going to do is he's going to build this picture of Jesus, which is known as the body of Christ, or the church of Jesus Christ. Now, in that house are apostles, capital A apostles. We cherish our heritage. It's a great cloud of witness that is leaning in and watching how we live in this life. But in its function, we are the sent ones. We are those that are esteeming to be the ones that are sent to carry out this message of a greenhouse. I know greenhouse is such a funny statement. But of this amazing temple, that's you and me and all who believe. We're in that house. This is the heritage of all those in faith, both up to this point and to come. We all share in this common union or communion in Christ. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, this is how we're finishing. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting that Jesus is called an apostle? Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Guys, one of the things that I am very passionate about, if you haven't figured this out, is I do not want to quench what God intends to do in his church. I do not want to be so watchful, so careful that I end up excusing all that God intends to do under the banner of conservatism. And if I'm just conservative enough, we will never lose our brain. We will never go wild-eyed. Our hair won't go... And we won't end up in leathern loincloths and, you know, popping locusts and wild honey. And we won't look like that kind of a Christian. I desire what God desires. Whatever his pattern is, I say we submit to it. Whatever he intends us to look like, even if it's fools to the world around us, we say, I'm game. Because is he not worthy to receive 
everything that he deserves. He has given us life. He has given us his pattern so that we could thrive. My prayer for each of my kids through this entire season, and they're joining me in it, is that each of them would know that they know that they know that the Spirit of God dwells within them. They wouldn't just know it theoretically, but they would know it actually, experientially, that they could testify of a full assurance of knowing that they're not just in Christ, but that Christ is in them and that they are the house of God. If that strikes you where you recognize you want to join that same pursuit to keep praying that prayer that we as the body of Christ would know, that we know that we know, that it would not be theorizing anymore about the grandeur of God's kingdom, but that kingdom needs to be real. It's supposed to invade our life. And if that kingdom has not invaded you and set fire to your soul, that altar is lit within you. Go after that. The whole point of going through this is not to just wax eloquent about this awkward topic. It's to recognize that we are the body of Christ meant to be animated by God. God has something for each one of us, but we need to be open and ready for it as well. With the guards of scripture, and I will not, uh, I, I know I've said that over and over again. I'm not interested in going off the rails either, but I am interested in being on the rails and moving forward in the direction that God has called us. Father, only you can accomplish this. This is something that we are so utterly dependent upon you for. And I pray that you would work wonders and miracles in our midst to train us in these truths, to protect us from the extremes on either side, whether it's extreme conservatism or extreme brainlessness. Lord, I pray that the word of God would be our governor, our guide, the truth that leads us, the truth that sponsors life, the truth that sets us free. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.